attention back to John chapter 4 then, in the context we've just read, verses 1 through 26. You know what we see? We see a lot of when we read the life of Jesus Christ. We see his compassion. The compassion of the Lord Jesus really is truly remarkable. How often do we read examples of it? You see, he stops when he sees, or should I say, hears blind Bartimaeus. As he cries out, Lord, or Son of David, have mercy on me. These cries are coming from this man. And the people are trying to silence him and to shut him up and to allow Jesus to pass by in some kind of honour and dignity. And what does Jesus do? He stops and he asks him, goes directly to him, tells him to be brought to him, one of those two. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? What about when he sees the funeral beer? Of the son of the widow of Nain. He was filled with compassion for her. And telling her not to weep. He raises her son to life. Truly remarkable. The friends and the family of Lazarus. Gathered together weeping. What does he do? He weeps with them. And then we see that he raises him from death. Speaking of a leper. In Mark 1.41 it says, Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. The Lord Jesus is willing. He is a, a man. He is the Son of God, full of compassion. Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, it says in Matthew 20.34. And immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep, having no shepherd. He looked out at these people, poor, miserable sinners. And he didn't look at them and judge them like we can often do. But he was moved with compassion. His heart was heavy. And he was weary with that burden. He saw them and saw them scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And all he wanted to do was be that shepherd and to gather them. See, this Jesus came to save his people from their sin. This Jesus came to preach repentance and the good news of the kingdom. He came to die. That's what he came for. And yet, not only did he do all this, he didn't simply preach the truth and go. No. He looked both into the hearts and the lives of people. He healed both spiritual and physical needs from death, sickness, 
disease, and even fed those who were hungry. We see in Romans 15, verse 3, I'm not going to turn to it, but make a note of it if you will. But we see there that Jesus never put himself first. He never put himself first. And this is something that many of us need God's help with. Because we have a tendency, if you know your own self, we have a tendency to put ourselves first. That's why we can be so defensive at times. That's why we can blame others for our problems, because we're putting ourselves and protecting ourselves first. But Jesus, not so. He always put others first. Every one of his friends abandoned him in the garden when he was arrested. And what about Peter? Peter, who vehemently swore that he would rather die than betray him. He fell at the first hurdle as he denied any knowledge of Jesus. I don't know who it is you're talking about. I swear to you, I do not know the man. And this is the guy who stood arrogantly and said, I'll die with you. Saul, this man wrought havoc on the church, arresting Christians, breaking up families, even giving his approval at the brutal murder of saints. Remember, he stood holding the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. And then, closer to home, what about you and I and our many betrayals of the precious Lamb of God? We need to think upon these things. Jesus did not die for a people who loved him. You see, not even the disciples had a full grasp of who he was, not at the time. They still lacked understanding. They still doubted, even as they were locked away behind closed doors after he died. They still confused, lacking understanding. The grasp of, of what had gone on, who he was. Have we spent three and a half years with this man only for him to die? What are we going to do now? We thought he was the one, and yet he's dead. What, what, what's going on? Even when he appeared to them, he doubted. They doubted. And they didn't believe. You, do you want to find that? It's in Luke 24, 36 to 43. Even when they he appeared to them, they didn't believe. What saith the scripture, we ask? Romans 5, 7 and 8 says this. When we were still without strength... In due time, at the right time, it says in other translations. Christ died for who? The ungodly. I think that Phil has alluded to this context in his snippet, which we'll hear later on. But Christ died for the ungodly. He died for them that didn't want him. He died for them that hated God. He died for them that rejected everything about him. For scarcely, it says... For a righteous man, one will die. Yet, perhaps for a good man, 
someone would dare to die. In another translation it says for a, a generous benefactor, somebody might, might dare to lay down their life for somebody who's been so good to them. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is compassion and grace and mercy of a magnitude that is beyond comprehension. While we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were full of wickedness and hatred, and while we were even planning his death. Think of the Jews, the Pharisees, behind closed doors, finding any way they could to trap him, to put him to death. He died for sinners. So we go to this context and we find then that Jesus is weary from his journey. And he sits down to rest near Jacob's well when a woman comes along to draw water. And here once again we witness the love and compassion of the saviour of sinners. John tells his readers that Jesus on his way to Galilee needed to go through Samaria. Now this, of course, naturally speaking, would be the route that he would take. But as we know, nothing Jesus said or did was without aim or without purpose. There were no accidents. Jesus himself said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. There's no such thing as chance when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's no such thing as chance anyway. It doesn't exist. Jesus was at the right place, and he was there at the right time to fulfil a purpose that was planned before the foundation of the earth. Nothing happens by chance. And then we're told that it was the sixth hour, which is about noon. This is the time where people would generally have a meal, which explains to us why the disciples had gone to buy food. But had they not gone, had they have just sat with the well with Jesus, had they stayed, they themselves could have drawn water for Jesus to drink. But such is the providence of God, that all these parts came together in order for Jesus to approach the woman and ask her to draw water to quench his thirst. But make no mistake, this thirst was real. The scripture says he was weary and he was thirsty from his journey. It was real thirst. It wasn't just a card that he played so that he could get her attention. But we see here, don't we, both the humanity and the divine in all that was going to unfold and come to pass in this meeting. We see that he was a man. He was tired, he was weary, he needed a drink. Obviously there was hunger, it was dinner time, the disciples had gone to get food. We see his humanity. We see his divinity. And what ensues? Make a note then that as a Samaritan woman, she would not have approached Jesus 
and was in fact truly surprised when Jesus openly spoke to her. For as she herself said in a somewhat scoffing manner, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now we also need to make note that that doesn't mean that there were no dealings between them at all. As we see, the disciples had gone to buy food in the vicinity. If they could have no dealings, they wouldn't buy food from them. But it's like such things as asking or receiving aid or help. It's not common. You wouldn't receive help or aid from them due to a, this age-old animosity between them, which stemmed from the rebuilding of the temple after the return of the Jews from Babylon. So a Jew asking a Samaritan for a drink would not be a done thing, and perhaps vice versa as well. We have no dealings with each other. Such was the animosity over years and years and years. But Jesus did. Jesus was a Jew, a first century Jewish man. She was a Samaritan. <coughs> this wasn't the dumb thing. Not only because she was Samaritan, because she was a woman. A man would perhaps not approach a woman herself and ask anything. But Jesus did. Why did he do it? Why did he ask it? For this reason. Because he had chosen to reveal himself to her. And he draws her attention in his reply to her somewhat jeering question. How is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me? A Samaritan woman. So he says, if you knew the gift of God, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here ensues a conversation between them about living water. Which she is a natural person, she, she just can't grasp it. She can't understand that Jesus is talking about conversion. Jesus is talking about being born again. Jesus is talking about being made a new creation. That out of her, her belly would flow streams of living water. And that she would no longer need to drink from the world again. But being saved, she would have her thirst quenched. She couldn't grasp it. She looked at the well, she saw Jesus, she saw he had no pot to draw with. He was thirsty, she was there to get water herself. He's talking about living water. She just couldn't get it. But Jesus deals with her gently. Notice it. He deals with her very gently. And he answers her inquiry about him being greater than Jacob by saying this. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. If we have everlasting life, we won't thirst. We won't hunger. We're alive. 
alive forevermore. And this is what he was bringing to her, to the table, even in a scoffing and a jeering attitude. He had chosen to reveal himself to her. And after hearing this, talking of this water that will quench her, that will cause her never to thirst again, suddenly her attention is, 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 is gained, grasped hold of something. Her ears prick up, her mind perhaps is thinking, what is he saying? See, before she had questioned Jesus in a sneering way, and perhaps even now still, she is still in that kind of sarcastic attitude. But calling him sir, she answers, give me this water. Give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So perhaps the case that she was a social outcast which may be the reason why she is drawing water at the well at this time of day. It was known that women used to go to draw up the water more towards evening time. When she was here at noon, again perhaps because she didn't want to meet people, she didn't want to bump into anybody. Maybe she was there at that time of day to avoid everybody else because of the reputation she had. Her understanding still darkened and in ignorance. It may be that she thought that having this thirst-quenching water would enable her never to need to come out into public to draw again. Maybe she was thinking, I come here, I am coming to avoid people. I come at this time because of that reason. If he gives me this water that he's talking about, if this is true, then I won't need to come here anymore. I won't need to exert my energies to draw water. You see, it is quite a common trait for people to hear about the benefits that Christ can offer and desire selfishly to have all those benefits without any commitment to the one that gives them. You think of the, the gospel that preaches that God gives you riches, that if you pray, he'll give you a Mercedes-Benz. You've heard the song, haven't you? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends have all got one. I must make amends. But there is an idea that God provides those kind of things. Who's not going to serve a Jesus that gives them a Mercedes? Who's not going to serve a, a Jesus that pays off your mortgage and gives you a, a six-bedroom house instead of a terrace two-bedroom? People want the benefits that God can give them without God himself. And it's similar here to some degree. If I can just, if this man can save me all the trouble and the care of drawing this water every day, I'll, I'll take it. But in response, Jesus says something to her. He says this, go and call your husband to come. He does this, and he does this knowing what her answer will be. knowing that she had no husband to bring. And he does this to reveal to her that he is no ordinary man, by which she perhaps thinks he is, even at this time. Just a guy. Asking me for a drink, talks a bit weirdly. But just a man, nevertheless. But he says this, bring your husband. 
And he wants to show her that he is no ordinary man. And then upon answering that she had no husband, Jesus' answer must have rocked her to the core. You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And I think that here something is starting to connect. Something is clicking. She starts to begin to understand that this man that is sat resting by the well is, of course, no ordinary man. At his preaching and teaching, the signs he performed, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, calming the storms, etc. Those who witnessed those such things could say no other than, who is this man? Who is he? And this very thought may perhaps have been running through her mind. How could this man know this? How could he know that I have had five husbands? And the one that I'm with now isn't even my husband. How could he know this? Who is this man? Something's starting to move. He's drawing her in. Jesus, as you remember, already said to her, if you knew who it was who says to you, give me a drink. If you knew, if you knew who I was, who said, give me a drink. If she had known that he was the eternal son of the living God, God in the flesh, if she'd have known when he said that to her, she would have been aware that nothing can be hidden from him. It's true to say that whilst we live as sons of disobedience, while we're walking according to the prince of the power of the air in rebellion against God, in our arrogance that we live to some degree comfortably in sin. Even to the, the lengths of parading some of it around in public, caring not for the righteousness of God. Yet, as with this woman, there may be some that just must be kept hidden. And then we convince ourselves that no one will ever find out. But then we read in Jeremiah 16 verse 17. God says this. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face. Nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. Let's not just take these scriptures like they're some kind of old scroll for ages gone by. He means the same today. Our sins and our iniquities, he knows, and they're not hid from his eyes. Luke 12, 2 says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Speaking to the tribes of Reuben and Gad regarding fighting for their brother's inheritance before settling into their own inheritance, God, through Moses, warns them 
Afterwards you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, if you don't come and help, if you don't come and fight for the inheritance of your, your brothers, if you don't come and do that before you settle down in your own, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord. And it says this at the end. Be sure your sin will find you out. See, in that rebellion that we have in our hearts against God, in the arrogance, the wicked believe that they can hide their sin from God. But what about believers? What about you and I here today? What of all those secret thoughts of yours and mine? What about that inward anger? Against a spouse when you've had an argument. What about that imagination of vengeance against someone who's hurt you? What about the lust of the heart? The lust of the eyes, the pride of life? What about those thoughts against God? When everything seems to be against you. And then we find that we doubt and question him. And even sometimes go to the point of blaming him for our troubles. And wonder if he even loves us at all. Friends, let's not be hypocrites. Let's not say that we never have such imaginations. For even we as God's adopted children, heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ. While our bodies and our minds are dead due to sin. And we battle with the flesh daily, do we not? But by power of the Holy Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Wouldn't tell us to do so. If we didn't have those deeds, if we didn't have those thoughts, if we didn't have those doubts, if we didn't have those horrible things that enter our minds that you would never even probably tell the one closest to you. We are both challenged and encouraged by John in his first epistle. I've already read from this this morning. But he, he says this, if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Let me tell you this. If you're a person that thinks you're perfect because Christ has died to save you and that you don't never sin again anymore, it says here that Christ is not in you. It's a lie. You're calling God a liar. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So deceiving ourselves, we believe it, we're deceived. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even as believers, we must never become familiar with God. We must not presume on his goodness by either treating sin as a mere trifle or somehow thinking we can hide it from him. 
Every minute thought and every attitude is open to him. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Nowhere to hide. Read Psalm 139 again, if you don't believe me. Where can I go? Even at the bottom of the sea, in the Mariana Trench or whatever it is, even at the bottom of there, you can't hide from God. Jesus desires this woman to understand that he knows her intimately. That he knows her state. That he knows how she has lived a life in wickedness. And he's bringing her to a place of conviction of her sin. And a knowledge of the danger that she's in. If it's not dealt with. That's what he's doing here. Hiding sin, brushing it under the carpet, will not make it disappear. Nor will it ever be dealt with. The work of the law must always do its work upon the soul first. We must come to an understanding not only of information, but a deep, deep sense of our sin within our hearts against the triune God. We must be broken by it. We must be found in that desperate place. That there is nothing we can do to absolve ourselves of guilt. That there's no detergent that you can go out and buy that will wash away those stains of guilt. The hammer has fallen. sentence has been passed and what awaits but eternal prison and it's assured it's an absolute see this this must we see before we can come to know the, know the need of grace Jesus leads this woman to see the kind of life she's lived. And she perceives that he is a prophet. She's not yet come to the knowledge of his true identity. But she is made startlingly aware that he knows her and he knows her right well. She admits it. Because the first thing she says is, I perceive that you are a prophet. She doesn't deny it. He tells her, five husbands, etc., etc. She doesn't say, oh, no, I haven't. No, she just says, I perceive that you are a prophet. There's something moving in this woman. But, however, rather than face the truth, she appears to change the subject by bringing up again that dispute between the Jews and Samaritans as to where the proper place of worship is. She kind of changes it. You read it, if you read it, you kind of look and think, it kind of makes sense. Just told her that she's a sinner, that she's had five husbands, and she just turns around and starts to kind of go back on herself about this age-old dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans again. 
Why? Because again, it's common. When sin is pointed out, when our consciences are pricked, and we are faced with the state of our hearts to divert the conversation to something else. And this is just what she did. Didn't Adam blame his wife for giving him the fruit? Didn't Eve blame the serpent for deceiving him? What do they call it? Passing the book. And in fact, Adam went even more a wicked step further by saying to God, the woman who you gave me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. So, ultimately, blaming God himself. You gave me the woman. If you had not given me this woman, I would not have taken her. <coughs> See, it's typical of the world to brush off sin, to cover it over with the pleasures, with the entertainments that the world offers, to, to gloss it over and to try and forget about it, to do everything we can just to kind of push it out of existence. But not only sin. The world doesn't only want to push their own sin under the carpet, lock it in a safe somewhere. But even the acknowledgement of God Himself. You see, if we can just get rid of the consciousness of God, well, then we can convince the heart that sin doesn't exist and there'll be no judgment needed for it. And so we try to convince ourselves that God doesn't exist so that we don't have to face the consequences of our sin, which we really know we have. But if we could just convince ourselves that there is no God, we start to harden. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And of course the context goes on. He gives them over to their own depraved mind that their consciences are seared so that they push their heart, the, the knowledge of their heart, what they truly know. They repress it so much that it's almost like it's disappeared. Because God has handed them over. They suppress the truth. As I said earlier, we'll look into a few individual parts of this chapter in a bit more detail later. But Jesus, allowing this conversational turn, uses it again to bring the truth to this woman's mind and heart. True worship isn't a matter of a place. Neither a temple in Jerusalem nor a mountain. But it is a spiritual condition, the fruit of a changed heart. As Albert Barnes rightly notes, it is a pure, a holy, a spiritual worship. Therefore, it is such as he seeks, the offering of the soul rather than the formal <coughs> offering of the body, the homage of the heart rather than that of the lips, which is exactly what I said at the very start of the service, isn't it? Let's not be those that just say we abide in Christ. But that we walk as he walked. This is what he said. Not just of the lips, but of a life. And it is perhaps the case that Jesus' explanation of true worship here wasn't satisfactory to the woman. 
Because Jesus had already said that salvation is of the Jews and he was favoured them in the question that she asked in verse 20 with regards to where true worship is. So she's probably a little bit mad about that. You see, Samaritans did acknowledge the first five books of Moses. And she did therefore have some knowledge of the Messiah. So she alludes to this coming Messiah as the one who will tell us all things when he comes. You say this. You say we, we worship in spirit and truth. You say that salvation is of the Jews. It's no longer in his temple, no longer on a mountain. When the Messiah comes, he'll tell us. He'll tell us when he comes. So she's waiting for him. She alludes to the Messiah. When he comes, he'll tell us the truth. He'll tell us all things. <laughs> she might be happy enough to admit that he is a prophet. She lays a hope in the Messiah settling this matter. But it's at this point that he turns to this woman and he reveals to her who he is. She says, when he comes, he'll reveal all things to us. And what does he say? I who speak to you am he. Wow. I don't know how she would have felt when she heard that. I believe that this was a changing, well, what is it? Seven words. I who speak to you am he. And I think right there, everything that he'd done that led up to this, he then said, I am he. And she was changed. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This is what happened right here. That this woman had been chosen before the foundation of the world. She was going to be holy, without blame. <coughs> having been predestined to adoption, she was being adopted into his family. By... Jesus Christ himself. I who speak to you am he. Jesus chose this woman. And he chose you. If you believe in him today. No less. That whatever was in your life. Whatever happened at the time that you came to Christ. Was just as ordered as it was when he went and sat by that well. When he sent his disciples off to get food when he was thirsty, when he called upon this woman who was there at the time that perhaps she shouldn't have been. He called upon her, give me a drink. And there is the conversation that led to her salvation. And it's the same with you. He chose you in him. He chose her, an infamously sinful woman. He chose you and me, perhaps there's some more infamously known in sin than others. But we're all sinners nonetheless. And he chose us. And he graciously and he lovingly drew her into a knowledge of her sin. And he graciously and lovingly drew you into a knowledge of your sin. And he dealt with her attitude and he dealt with yours. And he revealed to her who he was. And he revealed to you who he was. Who he is. 
This is what he does to all of his people. Next time, perhaps we'll go on to look at what happens next. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this account of the woman at the well. There's so much here, Lord God, so much that I have not delved into, generally speaking, of what happened here, Lord, merely scratching the surface of the wonder of your grace, the magnitude of your compassion, the love that you have for people, even though they face you with sneering and jeering attitudes of sarcasm. Yet, Lord, you lovingly drew her to yourself, and Lord, you did the same for us. So, Lord, we thank you that we can look at such things, and as we read, we can see your compassion and love, and we see what you've done for us personally. Lord, I pray that that's the case this morning for every one of us, that we see what it is that you've done, that you died for your enemies, you died for sinners. Whilst we were haters of God, you died for them, and you have lovingly and gently drew us to you. Oh, what a work of salvation is. Lord, that it's nothing in my hands. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Lord, there is nothing we can bring to your table. Lord, the table is already full. It's already been done. And Lord, we put our trust in you this morning. I pray if there's anyone amongst us this morning, Lord, that doesn't know you, I pray, oh God, that this sermon that this time in this building this morning might be their time sat at the well that you draw them to yourself and you whisper into their heart i who speak to you now am here lord we pray that you would save souls this morning glorify your name amongst us we pray in jesus name amen, amen. amen.